Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for November 2014. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen Sarah Koenig, chief witness, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... <laughs> Hi there everybody, I'm writer, hyphen director, hyphen finally saw Whiplash, and look, I don't know if there's a lot under the surface, but man, what a surface, I loved it. And our special guest this month is... Uh, Mark Hartley, I guess I'm Mark hyphen Hartley, hyphen director, hyphen editor, hyphen... Writer, hyphen, associate producer occasionally. <laughs> I have no idea. I totally qualifies. That's the whole point. I'm trying to think what I'm yeah. qualified to vote for the AFIs. That's every single one. <laughs> I think that's pretty much everything. Occasional radio film buff. That's true. Occasional reviewer rather than critic, I think, uh, is, uh, is the, uh, the key correct. difference. Yes. Now, I'm not smart enough to be a critic. That makes two but, but I'm dumb enough to be a reviewer. <laughs> Again, that makes two of us. Well, let's either critique or review Interstellar. Now, I have to ask, mm. have we all seen it? Or if we haven't seen it, do we have a really entertaining reason why we didn't? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. I am, I, I've uh, realised uh, quite recently that, uh, that um, uh, life is too short, and when you get burned by directors, you let them go. Right. And Christopher Nolan is one director that I've let go. Really? Yeah. I've got no interest in ever seeing another Christopher Nolan film. Because it, it it just frees me up to see good stuff. <laughs> and wow. uh, recently, it's funny. Recently, I watched Dreamscape. Do you remember Dreamscape, the mm. film from the eighties? Mm-hmm. And I realised that's the better version of Inception. <laughs> I'm not joking. Yeah, no. When Inception was coming out, there are a lot of there are a few. Chris Van like, didn't yeah, even have the guts to put the giant Snake Man in. Yes, Inception. <laughs> so you didn't see Interstellar. Why are we talking about Interstellar? <laughs> Look, this is. I won't even download it. Wow. wow. Yeah. Where do you stand on 2001 A Space Odyssey? I think 2001 would be a great film if they cut off the first 20 minutes and the last 20 minutes. I think right. the, the stuff in the middle is absolutely fantastic. But I think the ape stuff and the, uh, the uh, star child stuff, um, it, it kind of ruins it for me. Well, this plays, Interstellar plays like a uh, love letter to 2001. There are so many moments, like even in like the shot design and some of the sound effects, like Nolan clearly loves... Kubrick and loves 2001. So that's the thing. I mean, with 2001, like I say, you know, you chop off the top and the bottom and it's a good film. With Star Crash, you leave it and it's a good film. <laughs> with 100% more Hasselhoff. <laughs> Back to Interstellar. Back to Interstellar. Um, what, what did you think? Yeah, I do generally really enjoy Christopher Nolan films. Look, he hasn't lost his gift to construct a sequence. There is some beautiful build and kind of moments that just you get really swept up in. But every time somebody opens their mouth, you just want to kill yourself. Like, it's just, it's one of these films where it's kind of, you can't reach this high and try and, and, and be this profound with dialogue that sounds like that. Mm. It just really, really kills it. I think the actors all equip themselves well. I think the film is very well intentioned. I didn't really go with its kind of final act vision of the thing. I don't yeah, the thing yeah I don't want to spoil things. Look, ninety five percent of my problems with this film are script based, and I just feel like maybe the Nolan brothers need to get a third man in or woman. The uh, Nolan sister. Know, the Nolan sister. <laughs> Someone who can write dialogue would be awesome. Yeah, I look. I <laughs> I do agree with that because in the beginning it feels like every line is the setup for something that's going to be paid off later, like every line of dialogue. Yeah. And I was Absolutely. really worried in the beginning, but like for me, it really comes together in the, in the second hour 
and you can divide this film in two hours because <laughs> it's that long. Even at three hours, I should say I do think it should be longer. Mark's chomping at the bit to see. I'm, it I'm just thinking that um, you know, Gravity, which is you know, I, yep. I've read a lot of comparisons in terms of being another great space epic. Gravity is like 84 minutes of edge of your seat, yeah, you know, suspense, and this seems like three hours of tear up the seat. <laughs> well, it's it's actually very similar to Gravity, aside from length, in that Gravity I thought was great despite some of the problems with it. I thought it, you know, that I I had, I had a few script issues with it, not the same ones that everyone else had, but I still thought it was great despite those. And I feel Interstellar is as well, there's enough greatness. And that final sequence that you had the problem with, mm. I thought was extraordinary, what he managed to depict on, like, on film. I've never seen yeah. anything like that done, ever. Yeah, it's definitely imaginative, I'll give you that. It's just, I, I didn't go with mm. the, 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 the final um, sort of resolution of that, unfortunately. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, from Interstellar oh, to go. Maps to the Stars, they, I, didn't hey, even, I didn't plan this that guy one. with the segways. With the segways. I didn't even that. plan that stuff. <laughs> okay, so Cronenberg post Cosmopolis. He's sort of going into this Lynchian territory. I hate using the word Lynchian because mm. it's become such a cliche, but it, it is a little bit as if he's an alien trying to interpret what human beings do. Which is kind of his his whole theory on Taxi Driver, isn't it? That's sees, Cronenberg's theory. Yeah, sees Taxi Driver as a science fiction film about an alien who's been plumped into New York and is trying to work out how humans relate. I think that theory informs this film. I, I'm about to write off Cronenberg too, to scrap, oh, stri- no. strike him off my list. All Cronenberg or just recent Cronenberg? No, no, just never needing to see another Cronenberg film. Cronenberg's going to the puppy farm as well. <laughs> so it's not that you've never loved Cronenberg. Oh, it's no, no. Recent... I mean, recently I was in a lift, an elevator with Cronenberg, and oh. it, it was the most exciting thing that happened to me in Toronto. <laughs> this is prior to seeing this film. If I had have seen this film prior, it would have, it would have meant nothing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, it seems to me this film is such a tired satire written decades earlier that tries to be the inside story but never seems to be the inside story, seems so far from being the inside story, even though it's made by people who work in the industry, albeit they're based in Canada, and, uh, you know, very little of it was shot in the States. But, you know, it also, for me, goes after really soft and easy targets, like child stars, Scientology, New Age, mumbo-jumbo, casting couch. There's nothing kind of new, and there's there's less inside Hollywood cameos in this film than there is in an episode of The Family Guy. <laughs> for me, this film, I said this on film bus, I have to admit, for me, it's the next Mummy Dearest. Oh, wow. You know, because it's so melodramatic, mm. and I mean, I've, I'm so far removed from Hollywood, but for me, it didn't capture at all the feeling of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's going for that, though. I think it's going for this whole other thing about, it's just using Hollywood as an in to these people who talk in and deal in lies and everyone's lying to everyone else and it's I think it's a it's, it's a comedy like it's not just funny it's like an act, it's actually playing it for laughs I think you're cutting it a lot of slack because Cronenberg made it I think if you know if um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a just a generic everyday director had made it he would be maybe not talking about it in such yeah maybe glowing Look, terms that's possible um, I'll never know because because Cronenberg didn't. <laughs> well, because yeah, you go in loaded with expectations. Um, yeah, you, you never go in in a vacuum. So when you say Lynchian, did this film to you have a like a kind of a Mulholland Drive sort of a feel or a... without the horror? Yeah, I yeah, mean, right. there's a bit of there's a bit of scary stuff in there, but uh, mm. like oh, you know, he's going for the for the scares, but it's uh, like but yeah, the non-horror kind of that, I guess yeah. Maybe. 
Suzanne Beer's Serena, in which Bradley Cooper and Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence, Lawrence. Uh, in 1920s America. Uh, I'm not saying they delayed this film coming out. I'm just saying that when they shot it, it wasn't a period piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know about this film. I feel like it's sort of a Depression-era sort of soap melodrama little bit of revenge movie in it and a little bit of, you know, going mad. It it felt mostly to me like a second, like like a second film in a double feature in the late 40s, early 50s. Like, it felt like something Joan Crawford would have been in mm. on the back end of her career. I wasn't entirely sure what it was trying to say other than tick genre boxes. It didn't seem to have a great deal of, of insight and it wasn't that thrilling when it did go in that direction. I mean, Cooper and Lawrence are great. They're always fun to watch. There was that. Some of it is beautifully shot. I actually felt a real conflict with with the shooting because you'd have these amazing vistas and then you'd have this really aggressively jerky handheld camera work, digital camera work that would just pull you right out of it. Well, that's, that's beer. That's, yeah. And it's yeah. like, but then you've got this beautiful giant Heaven's Gate style shots as well. And it's this kind of really incongruous style. And I wasn't entirely sure that it was communicating anything yeah, in I particular. Think, I think most of the elements, the individual elements work as a whole. It just doesn't work. And I'm sort of very hard for me to pinpoint why it doesn't quite come together. And what you're talking about, like going in... Uh, uh, seeing Maps of the Stars and going, oh, it's Cronenberg. I went into this thinking, oh, it's Suzanne Beer. And so I was seeing things that I might not have seen otherwise because I love, you know, all of the uh, European films. Yeah, I think a lot of it just lays there. Like, I don't know. I just, I didn't find it very compelling. I, I, you I feel some of the edits too. Oh, yeah. There's a glimpse of a big dance sequence, an elaborate dance sequence, mm. just one, for one shot, fade in, fade out. And it's, yeah, it's an odd moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of... It's like a montage used to pace the gaps. You think, well, either you spend a lot of money to mount this sequence for this one shot, or it's cut to pieces. Yeah, There was meant to be this sequence in there, and I don't know if that's a fair thing to note. It's, that's a bit inside Hollywood to yeah. sort of go, oh, I can see the, 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 the cracks, but... but- Either or, it is weird. Like, like, okay, if you don't if you don't know the history of this film and the length of time it's taken to make and get out, mm. um, you look at that moment in isolation. And go, Why the fuck is that even there? Like, mm. just cut it out. Like, or is it this? I, I figured it was her shorthand as for you know them getting together and because it's quite yeah. montagey to that point. But yeah, I just yeah, I just felt a very flat kind of kind of melodrama in the end, which is a shame because I think I think the actors are kind of punching a little below their weight. Iphons is great. Reese Iphons, I think, really does something interesting. Okay. Um, Nightcrawler. Okay. We've all seen that? We have. We have. <laughs> <laughs> what do we think? Because this is a lot of people are calling you know, best of the year. It's, uh, it's earning a lot of love. Oh, you guys go first. <laughs> <laughs> I Look, I think... I, w- I was impressed. I'll say that. Jake Gyllenhaal is kind of amazing. It is a weird kind of taxi driver American psycho in the age of modern media kind of hybrid. But the more I was watching it, the more I, it began to occur to me that this is yet another kind of brilliant interpretation of the vampire genre. It felt like a vampire movie to me. It's like he's someone that, that is, exists at night and preys on the lives of others and meets someone else who does the same. And 
their conflict and their relationship and that power struggle going on. And as much as it says about the bloodlust of the modern media and as much as it says about the American dream and, you know, that horrible capitalist nightmare that that is, I think it's told through a very modern kind of real-world vampire story. And I think in a year that includes things like, you know, Only Lovers Left Alive and What We Do in the Shadows, I think it's kind of fits interestingly in that group. I think this is the year that has kind of redefined what a vampire movie right. is. I mean, I'm a person that considers Sunset Boulevard a vampire movie. Yeah. So, and I think this is kind of in that territory. That's, um, yeah, I can see that. I didn't get the vampire thing, but I, I looked at it as a, a film. When he's outside, he only wears sunglasses. Just saying. Well, yeah. <laughs> I was looking at it as he's a guy. You know, they set him up pretty early on and basically say he's a psychopath and he is pretty much on the verge of becoming a serial killer. He's one of those guys mm. that you could see going... but. It's not about him, it's about the fact that we've now um, uh, taken our society to a point where somebody who is that psychopathic can not only survive, but thrive. Yeah. We've created an environment for psychopaths. I wasn't sold on it. No? No. Uh, I thought the bug-eyed performance from Gyllenhaal kind of never feels remotely anchored in anything real. He's unhinged from frame one. There's absolutely nowhere for the character to go. And there's no everyman traits for the audience to associate or sympathise with and ultimately invest in. Well, that's what I felt when I was watching it. Uh, And once you get past the paparazzi and their ethics kind of cautionary tale, the film has nothing else to offer either. I love Renee Russo. It's really good to see her back on the screen. I just Mm -hmm. wish she wasn't channelling a poor woman's Faye Dunaway in the much better film Network, which seems to be the whole inspiration for her character. And the good thing to know is that there's only one family to blame for this. <laughs> because, you know, you've got Dan Gilroy, who's responsible for Real Steel. Let's not forget that. That crime against cinema. He wrote and directed it. His brother, Tony, yeah, yeah. produced it. Yeah. His other brother, um, John, edited the film. Okay. And he's married to Rene Russo. And is Gyllenhaal his love child? <laughs> I'm not sure. It's a Gilroy family joint. There's a lot in this film that when you're watching a half an hour and you're thinking of Taxi Driver, later on you're thinking of American Psycho, like I don't think the film is doing anything entirely new. I think it's putting a very modern spin on a lot of old films of this type, like Network. Something else just popped in my head. Um, 15 minutes. (laughs) The Robert De Niro, Edward Burns that coined the phrase for the movie, it, when it, if it bleeds, it leads. No movie had said that before 15 minutes. That really? Was, that was a Kelsey Grammer. So it yeah. finally has yes. a so, claim to fame. Yes. So now, and now every fucking movie uses that term, including Nightcrawler. Yeah. I think the thing, the thing that caught me off guard with this film that I didn't expect and I was really impressed with, it's a lot funnier than I thought it was going to be. Like, I thought it was going to be this really intense, psycho, kind of pumped-up drama. It ended up being, it's as much a, a dark comedy as it is anything else it's almost those kind of mike lee movie effect where you're just or curb your enthusiasm movie effect where you just kind of ask you're wishing characters would stop speaking just don't don't speak don't don't keep having this conversation get out why why are you doing that like it really makes you squirm yeah i think you're right about today's media uh, in particular facilitates psychopaths i think that's a really great great insight and i think that sort of thing i, I think the film's really on point about i love its cynicism and it's got a cool look too it's mm. great apparently they shot film during the day and digital at night mm. And you wouldn't notice. It's Compared to a lot of films you see in digital at night these days, you get that horrible kind of ghosting effect. So they wasted their money is what you're saying because you didn't notice the... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but, it, but the digital look gives it this, like, 
pulsating kind of it does like it's not bad digital is what i'm saying i'm saying like the 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 color highlights really pop and it's really kind of alive in a way that michael mann was sort of working towards but never quite got there but yeah i i had a really good time during this i don't think it's any masterpiece but i think it's it's a cracking little kind of uh neo vampire tale. Uh, for our middle segment, uh, we thought we'd shoot the breeze a little bit about a um, a subject that strikes your average film buff when they begin, you know, slouching towards middle age. And, you know, th- th- there's a good distance between, you know, the films that got you into film and that you, f- you know, fell in love with at that time, as well as others that were around at the same time that you're kind of in love with but not as connected to. Because, you know, like, you, there's the films that changed you, you know, there's your Star Warses and your Diehards and stuff like that that kind of stick with you throughout the years and you know they're good films and you're quite ready to revisit them and yeah they're great but there's this whole other stream of films that let me put it this way you know when i was 16 i thought city slickers was one of the five funniest films ever made okay i haven't seen it since and i'm terrified of seeing it because it's not gonna hold up let's face it backdraft was another one that i was incredibly impressed with at the age of 16 don't know if it's gonna hold up and I guess the issue we're, we're, we're sort of looking into here is that is it better to love a bad film as a kid or critically discover it to be bad as an adult? Mark, you've made a career out of, out of no, uh, the these, films that you love. No, forget that these things are also tarnished with nostalgia, though, so you're willing to forgive a lot. I mean, I honestly can't think of any film that I've revisited as an adult that I absolutely loved when I was a kid that disappointed. Right. There's been lots of television that yeah. I loved when I was a kid like cartoon shows that I just couldn't watch now because you realise just how difficult they are to get through yeah. because they are so childish. But I was lucky with the kids' films that I loved when I was a kid with um, things like, I don't know if you guys have seen The Phantom Tollbooth, the Chuck Jones animated... Cyrano was very... Half young. animated, half live action. Yep. Um, things like uh, The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, the Dr. Zeus movie. They are amazing. I mean, they stand up so well. Even the Disney stuff I saw, like The Last Flight of Noah's Ark, mm. I, I'll, you know, I'll watch that once every few years and still love it. So I was, I've been kind of lucky. I mean, there was a film that I loved called The Boy and the Pirates. Mm. I remember really, really loving that as a kid. And that was the only thing that's vaguely disappointing because when I saw it again, it was just a lot more kiddie than I remembered it being. Mm. But I think I've been lucky in that, in that most of the kids' films I loved were also made in some way for adults. Mm. Yeah. And so things like Day the Earth Stood Still on Earth versus the Flying Saucers and films like that were obviously made for adults, but they had flying saucers and robots in them, so kids loved them as well. But yeah. when you re- revisit those films, you, you find the things that you love about them now are not necessarily the same things you loved about them when you were kids. And that's an interesting point too. It's like suddenly the film becomes something else to you. And, you know, as the whole thing, well, the film hasn't changed, you've changed. Well, what, what, you, what you enjoy in films has changed. Yes. And... So when revisiting those films, like, do you kind of make an almost a mental effort to divorce yourself from nostalgia? Or do well, you I have to say, I've never done a, I haven't done a police academy marathon. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, I, yeah. you know, if I did a police academy marathon, watching Mission to Moscow about six in the morning would just be a little bit too difficult to appreciate <laughs> the subtleties of the, um, the, the comedic timing. <laughs> Bubba Smith. I've I got to say, for me, I always think of Willow, the, the Ron Howard film, in mm. the, which is not a beloved film. But I, I loved it as a kid, and I still love it. And I know that a lot of that is nostalgia. And there's this popular thing online, which is, you know, saying, oh, you know, those films like The Goonies is a big one. It's mm-hmm. a big whipping boy at the moment online. People say, you know, you just love it because of nostalgia. And I'm, I'm thinking with the films that I love, you know, what I don't actually see what's wrong with that. You know, I, I'm loving it the way I love it. And if nostalgia is a part of that, then 
I don't, I don't think nostalgia is a fog necessarily. Not in every case. I think sometimes it allows you to see what's great about a film that I think a lot of people don't see if they're if, if they they're not coming to it in those same circumstances. Yeah. See, I think that's something in that because I only saw Labyrinth for the first time about mm. seven years ago. I never saw it as a kid. I saw it at like thirty-two. And thought it was garbage. <laughs> it was absolute, like, yeah, look, there's some creativity in there, power to Henson, but Jesus is this turgid. And the characters suck, and why is David Bowie thrusting his crotch at me every five minutes, and what is this film? And so many people who I know who love it all saw it as kids. Is it the fog of nostalgia and childhood? Because it seems to be a kind of, like, I don't know anybody that discovered Labyrinth as an adult who loves it. Yeah. And films of that kind of ilk. And so it sort of makes me think that there is some fog of nostalgia going on there. I gotta say, having rewatched it recently, and I still love it, and I, but I can't tell if that's just the childhood yeah. thing. Yeah, because there is that adult part of you that's looking at it and going, mm, I I, I'd never seen it, and I watched it you know, a few years ago and thought it was a bit of a slog. Yeah, I, I think that's one that's like, you need to see no, it through the magic it, of I mean, childhood. Uh, one of the films that I didn't like when I was a kid was Return to Oz, and that's really interesting watching it now. Mm. Yeah. Right. See, I think it's almost, yeah, because that almost works in reverse, because mm. I think you see how interesting and fucked up and weird it is as an adult, <laughs> and it's like, who in their right mind makes this as a sequel to The Wizard of Oz? And it's, it's just an interesting experiment. I mean, I guess, because I know you, Lee, in particular, have been quite concerned with the whole thing of your mood when you see a mm. film and where you're at when you see a film and how much does that impact your judgment of the film? Like, I think to you it's almost impossible to be completely objective. Yeah, I, I think so. Well, if we're going to jump off that thing of, of the mood you're in informing what you see, then maybe because we tend to love more things as kids than we do as adults, maybe there's something in the fact that uh, we're less judgmental as kids, or we're more open to... And maybe that's better than... I, I'm just talking myself out of a job as a professional film critic, but, you know, analysing films and, 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 and looking at it with ultra-critical eye, or maybe, maybe you can't avoid that. Like, you can't well, look, avoid... For, for me, it was such a novelty going to the cinema when I was a kid. You know, you were, you were, it's kind of like um, art house audiences these days. You're conditioned to like the film, whether it's rubbish or not, mm. and uh, whether it's good or not. Mm. And so I remember seeing things like The Toy... Oh, God. Jackie Gleason. I mean, I saw that stuff in the cinema yeah. and had no complaints with it because mm. it was just so great to be in a cinema on school holidays. Uh, Brewster's Millions. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a Walter Hill film for Christ's yeah. sake. Brewster's Millions. Well, if we have to come down on one side or the other, I'm, I'm calling it for nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah. Although I say I'm, I'm scared to mention these things, I think through this conversation I realised, nah, bring it on. I want to revisit this stuff. I want to sort out my teenage self and go what the fuck were you thinking? Or, hey, you were right on there. You had, you had some early taste. All right, so, Mark, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hell is for hyphen, it's Filmmaker of the Month. Well, look, I know probably practically every other guest you get on here talks about highfalutin directors like your Cullens and... Your... Christopher Nolan, David yeah. Cronenberg, Suzanne yeah. Veer, that type. Yeah. I love the careers of jobbing directors. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Jay Lee Thompson and John Gillum and all mm. those jobbing UK directors. And, you know, even when I was a kid, I found the directors I love were modern-day jobbing directors like Peter Hyams and John Badham, mm. who never really had any kind of intrinsic, you know, uh, trademark, but they made great films. And part of the reason they made great films is because they made so many films. Mm. 
particularly someone like a Richard Fleischer, when you look at Richard yeah. Fleischer's career, I mean, there's eight great, great movies there amongst... 45. 40 films. <laughs> yeah, but to make eight great ones is quite incredible. But mm. no one gives these people time of day. So one of the films that I loved when I was a kid was A Legend of Hell House, and that was one of the films that made me seek out the other films of a director called John Huff. Mm. And I figured that no one would know who he was, and he had a pretty interesting body of work of so many different diverse types of films that he was worth educating people about. I Yeah, I, I got to say, I, I had to look him up. That doesn't happen often on this show, but I did have to look him up when, when you said his name, and I discovered that I only knew uh, a couple of his films. One, by accident, happened to be the first Hammer Horror I ever saw, was Twins of Evil. And so uh, I, I do have a bit of a, a little bit of a, a connection, but the rest were... Uh, yeah, it was a mystery to me. Uh, Dirty Mary Crazy Larry has always been on my list of films to see. And I remember having a, a movie magazine, like a horror movie magazine or something from the early 80s. And one of the films they were looking at was Watcher in the Woods. Yeah. And there was this whole sort of profile on that and Betty Davis. That's about, yeah, that's about all I kind of, you know, other than seeing the video covered American Gothic a lot in the late 80s, yeah. And, oh, and I always saw the trailer to Biggles. There was a point when Roadshow were just thrashing Biggles' Adventures in Time. And I was really looking forward to it as an 11-year-old. I remember seeing it and being a little bit underwhelmed. But I am so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so interested to get into this, uh, into this guy's filmography. For me, his career's been intrinsically linked to the Avengers and to its cast and crew. In 1960, he was accepted for an apprenticeship at Elstree Studios, where he basically worked his way up from pretty much the mailroom to a second unit director. He worked on shooting second unit action on lots and lots of shows, The Saint, The Baron, The Champion, and eventually The Avengers. And his first directing jobs were helming a few episodes in the film's final season, which I've recently watched. And his eps, along with... um. I don't know if you know the director, Robert Fust. Yeah. He's another guy you should investigate. He made the Dr. Fibes films mm. uh, and a great film um, with John Finch. Yes, uh, The Final Program. The Final That's, Program, yeah. which, is, which I really love as mm. well. Th- those two directors, their episodes were the most inspired and the most visually dynamic. And you could tell when, when you had guys that actually were really punching above their weight making these episodes, particularly in the final season. He also announced in those episodes... His visual aesthetic, which is lots of low angles, lots of wide angles, mm. almost experimental pop art compositions. And I always found that his films, regardless of the quality, were always quite lively and certainly offbeat. And they were kind of the, the qualities that I always liked about him. His, uh, his first film, Eyewitness or Sudden Terror, as it's known in some places, fantastic thriller. The producer, Paul Maslansky. Who yes, yeah, I noticed that, yeah. Uh, approached him and said, look, uh, you know, there was a Bobby Driscoll film called The Window. I don't know if you guys have seen The Window, a fantastic film noir film, which subsequently got remade as Cloak and Dagger. Richard ah, Franklin's Cloak yeah, and Dagger right. is, is a reworking yeah, of The Window. Yeah, of course, yeah. And the idea was to, to make a, a modern take on that. And Essentially, think, it's a Boy Who Cried Wolf Boy story. Boy Cried Wolf, yeah. yeah. What's interesting when you watch it now is just the opening credits. Uh, it's written by Ronald Harwood, who oh wow wrote the pianist wrote the the um did he co-write the Constant Gardener? Was that he did the the Diving yeah. Bell and the Butterfly, but m- more insane, he co-wrote Australia. <laughs> right. So it's good to know that Eyewitness Sudden <laughs> Terror is written by the co-writer of Australia, and it, it also opens with this fantastic psychedelic credit sequence mm. which lists Jonathan Demi's first screen credit yeah I spotted that as music, music supervisor, supervisor. Yeah. so bizarre 
I was so impressed with this film. I thought it was a really punky debut. Like, it's super tight. It's a lot of fun. It makes sense for the most part. You know, it makes sense for all part. I don't think there's nothing in it that doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like, it's you've got Tony Bonner being well, swamp. It has three of the blondest leads you'll ever <laughs> see in a single frame, <laughs> and that is Susan George. I think this is just prior to her doing Straw Dogs. Yeah. Mm, yeah. You've mentioned uh, Tony Bonner, who next up for him was The Creatures the World Forgot for Hammer. For Hammer. <laughs> And the kid from Oliver. Yeah. The kid from Oliver, Mark. <laughs> Most of the story is a young boy witnesses political assassination. He's pursued by the killers. He's aided by his retired military grandfather, mm. who is absolutely fantastic. Lionel Jeffries is really fantastic yeah. in this film. There's some great dialogue in there. Like, he gets all the best lines. Yeah. There's some, like, it's just got that really kind of snappy, jaunty humour. It's, it's tight and thrilling. Peter Vaughan is this kind of Terminator-like, you know, well, Peter seek and destroy. And, and Peter Bowles is a double act. Yes. Yeah. It's such a bizarre duo, to, you know. Bowles turns up in a few of his films. He does, yeah. yeah. Bowles, Bowles turns up in a lot of his television too, so obviously right. he was a, a regular. But what I kind of like about it is it's shot in Malta. It's full of the Hoff trademarks that I mentioned. There's the wide angles, there's low angles, there's zooms, there's pull focuses from foreground to background actors constantly. Mm. And it was shot by David Holmes, who also uh, had shot a lot of Avengers episodes. Yeah. And, um, and shot Wolf's Head as well, from what I understand. And it's beautifully photographed for, in that 70s kind of style. But the compositions seem really well-planned. Yeah, like it does seem very meticulous. And for a PG film, it is particularly nasty. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a film where a young girl and her father, as well as a nice kind of well-meaning priest, get killed in a very, very vicious way. Mm. And, and nothing's kind of held back on. It also kicks off uh, a particular interest of him, which is uh, bodies or cars getting thrown from cliffs, which I believe appear in every film he ever made. Even, <laughs> even some of the Barbara Cartland adaptations oh, wow. he does for TV. I'm, sh- I'm, still... sure, I'm sure Wolf's Head doesn't have a car getting thrown from a cliff. <laughs> no, a does it have a horse flying off a cliff and exploding? <laughs> But no, every like even the Cartland films, like every thing, it's just he loves throwing stuff off cliffs. I've never seen anyone so taken by that idea. It's great. But yeah, then he goes uh, Twins of Evil, one of the best Hammer horrors, I think. It's a good return at that point. Seventies Hammer horror was was particularly seventies, and this one is kind of a return to old fashioned gothic Hammer mm. horror as well. Yeah, again, visually lively. I love the um, like the lit up upside down crucifixes in the background and things like that. And it doesn't look as stagey. I mean, as mm. set as set bound as most of the Hammer films around that period either. Um, it looks like there's a lot of location work. I hadn't seen it for quite a while, and I watched it yesterday. And the one thing that struck me is it's it's quite explicit. Yeah. By Hammer standards, for around that time. Um, in sex and violence, I think. Yeah, I mean, there, there's eyes being burnt out, yeah. there's cleavers in heads, there's that fantastic, very unexpected shock decapitation moment. Mm. But uh, it also has, as well as obviously your obvious requisite nudity being called Twins mm. of Evil and casting two actual Playboy, Playboy, Playmate, twins. Playmate twins, it has that scene of the reincarnated vamp masturbating a candlestick. Oh, that yeah. was great. Which just comes out <laughs> of yes. absolutely nowhere. And... Um, <laughs> So I thought that was, you know, particularly pushing the envelope, even for even for, know, Hammer. For, for Hammer back then, yeah. And <laughs> well, Cushing, mas- masturbating the envelope, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Cushing is great. I mean, Cushing is really, really on mm. fire in this yeah. film. Yeah, yeah, he's great. And I like that it's quite it's quite critical of that puritanical yeah. um, <laughs> point of view as well. It's like the the witch finders are by no means the heroes of this story. They may They're as well frequently as mocked yeah. as 
fuckheads. Like, may as well have called him Mary Whitehouse. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. At exactly. least he does have the good line, the devil has sent me twins of evil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is a, which is a, a misnomer, really, because there's only one evil. Yeah, yeah, the other one's yeah. quite sweet. Well, I think given the <laughs> amount of nudity, that's what the twins of evil refers to. Surely, <laughs> no. All right. But so you mentioned the Legend of the Hell House before, and he's made these two great horror films, and in between there, in '72, is Treasure Island with Orson Welles as, uh, as Long John Silver, and that I I feel that's just. The energy is just sapped out of yeah, that Yeah, it's one. a curious like, one, isn't it? I must admit, I don't think I've ever seen Treasure Island, but I, from what I understand, it's a particularly troubled production. I think he's credited as English language director yeah, or something. Yeah. It's it? shot in three languages. Like, there's a Spanish director or an English director. And it's Harry and Allen Towers. I don't know if you know anything about Harry Allen Towers, the producer on it. Harry Allen Towers was the guy who basically made a lot of Jess Franco films right. uh, and, um, and, and basically went from continent to continent finding tax breaks yeah. <laughs> and, and piecing films together. Made hundreds and hundreds of films. Well, because IMDb has him listed as English language director, I tried looking into like how much he directed. Did he just direct some scenes or the dub or did he direct the whole thing and there's not a lot of information out there to really clarify this point mm, but it is really flat like and it doesn't have as much of like some of the low angle stuff there but but not nearly as much of the style as the films that surround it but legend of hell house in 73 now this is a horror film can this, i this just say this is one of the most handsomely photographed british horror films i've ever seen like it's almost giallo-esque like, there are so many shots you could just take a screenshot of and put it on your wall. It's the Citizen Kane Gorgeous. of haunted house movies <laughs> in, terms, in terms of the deep focus and all the really yeah. interesting, interesting it's, camera angles. It's yeah. stunning to look at. Yeah. Like, as well as the action that's going on and, and uh, the cast are all terrific. Roddy McDowell pulling a little switch there towards the end. and The, the camera placement is extraordinary, the shot design, but also the sound design. They've got the great Delia Derbyshire doing the sound design. It's just, the production values are, are extraordinary in this film. And, yeah, it's it's close to his best film. And it was a major studio film as well, 20th Century Fox. Well, it, it's interesting. Um, James Nicholson had just left AIP. And uh, this was his first and only solo effort. He died literally oh, wow. two months after the film was greenlit. For me, I, look, this was this was the film that scared the living daylights out of me as a kid. Uh, it, it is just a beautifully made film. It's mm. got absolute atmosphere to burn. It's got the creepiest electronic score that I, don't th- I think I've ever heard in a film. And it's beautifully cast. Mm. I mean, right down... I'm not sure if you guys appreciate the work of Clive Revel. You've probably seen him in hundreds of things. He's the guy who plays the, the um, psychologist who goes in to debunk the house. Right, yeah. He's a New Zealand actor. Turns up mm. in um, Joseph Losey films and things like that. Lots right. and lots of films. Gail Honeycutt plays his wife, who's absolutely fantastic. And she was married to David Hemmings at the time. Yep. He was one lucky guy. I really dug Pamela Franklin. And Pamela Franklin, who obviously has got a bit of history there because she's in The Innocents. And she's a, uh, a mental medium yep. who shouldn't have any kind of um, physical... Uh, phenomena happening around her, which sort of freaks her out. Mm. Uh, Roddy McDowell, who I always loved as a kid, yeah. um, I think mainly just because he was in all the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> um, he's a spiritual medium who's basically blocking himself from the house because he's the only person to survive mm. the last the last examination. Attack, yeah. 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 I, lo- I love the William Castle-esque opening title card. <laughs> Although the story of this film is fictitious, the events depicted involve psychic phenomena are Tom- not only very much within the bounds of possibility, I can say but d- could well be true. Tom Corbett. Yes. <laughs> Didn't even look at your notes there. No, Tom Corbett. 
and, uh, and the other the other great thing about it is it, it gives you so, it gives a timeline too. So there's constantly yeah, dates and times yes. coming out. And it's a, it's Very the world's weirdest Christmas movie. movie. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> it's, all in the week leading up to Christmas. It has so many great set pieces mm. in it too. The paranormal attacks are incredibly well staged. The cat scenes with Franklin literally were the scariest things I'd ever seen and still yeah. freak me out. They're so well done. Um, and it has a fantastic all-is-revealed finale ending. And I have to say that Roddy, when Roddy McDowell confronts Belasco at the end, yeah. we totally ripped that off when we had... Um, Cassidy kind of confront Patrick's powers in, yeah. in, in the remake of Patrick. It was totally me sitting down yeah. with Justin and showing him the legend of Hell House and saying, this is the kind of moment we need here. Yeah, yeah. This is how you do it. All the stuff with the sun being found in the walls, all that stuff, it's, it just, it's such a great, great film. Mm. And for me, I mean, this is the same year as The Exorcist. I, I will go on record as saying I think this is a better film than The Exorcist. Wow. That's a poster quote. If you ever get a chance, track down um, Richard Matheson's novel of Hell House. Yep. It's a lot more erotically charged. All that stuff's kind of been diluted a bit. There's still a lot of it in, in the film, mm. but um, it's, it's a fantastic, fantastic room. Oh, the other thing is um, its use of colour is jello-like as well. Like, there are rooms that just blaze with scarlet and, and greens and blues. And, yeah, and you'll never see so many shots of people reflected in teapots. And <laughs> <things>. <laughs> It's the British touch. <laughs> now, now, I do have to admit, even though it's a cult classic, I had not heard of Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry before. Wow. I know. It's, uh, it's brave for me to admit that, especially after seeing it. It's, it's such a great film. It's so quotable. The, oh, God. And, yeah, it's just, it's got that sort of unapologetic, fast-paced thing you could only get away with in the 70s. As, as well as an ending you could only get away with in the 70s. An ending, yeah. You could never <laughs> get God, away with that. My God, this is my favourite of Huff's films. This one just blew my hair back. Uh, within about five minutes of hearing the dialogue, you, you're like, yeah, this is why QT loves this. Like, it's just so... Um, the, the characters are quirky and bizarre in their own way. I love the trio of um, uh, Deke the Mechanic and Mary and Larry. I think they have a really great dynamic and bounce. Well, for me, Adam up. Rourke steals it. I think Adam Rourke's yeah, absolutely terrific. fantastic in it. I've never heard so many pop culture references in a film that early. Like, it feels like yeah. it's 20 years before its time, or ahead of its time, rather, uh, in terms of, like, referencing TV shows and movies and, yeah. And Vic Morrow's whole character. And for a while there, you don't know if Vic Morrow is actually competent. <laughs> like, yeah, he just yeah. acts like someone who is competent, but he's not actually competent. It's really amazing. Yeah. It's, I've very rarely seen a cop in a movie like that. Also, too, now I know when... Um, in Death Proof, when Quentin Tarantino's bartender tells one of his waitresses to flip off the lights, Punky, I know where Punky comes from now. <laughs> this movie. <laughs> it, it is literally, it, I mean, it was a drive-in phenomena. I, I even remember it's huge. it from as a, as a kid, like, you know, screening on double bills at the drive-in. But what's great about it is that it all seems like it's all shot on location. Yep. It's all shot at real speed. Mm. I mean, even when you watch, The Road Warrior particularly suffers from, when you watch it now, and how much undercrank stuff is in there. Mm. But this film, everything is at speed. Yeah. And that's the most amazing thing about it. And it's very weird and ironic watching the finale with Vic Morrow in that helicopter yeah. doing the most dangerous things I've ever seen on screen. <laughs> you know? I mean, with, and it is Vic Morrow in that chopper. Yeah. There's no yeah, stuntman. Yeah. There's no... Mm. It's very portentous, I think. Is yeah. that the word? Yeah. Important um, of things to come. But I love that the... the the ending isn't just a random thing either. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all going to go into what it is. Well, it is it's random. It's just amazing. But no, <laughs> no, they set it up. 
at the st- like they they talk about the one of the first conversations they have is about their luck, mm-hmm. and it's like and that is absolutely seeded. I thought this was so airtight and co-written by a woman, which I thought was cool too. Who only, who only literally died a, a week ago. Yeah. yeah, I saw that in the Lee Chapman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she was an actress uh, who then driver. turned to writing. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah such a salty. Cool From what I understand, though, it was a, it was the original producer of it was like a stock car racer or something. And mm. when he pitched it, this is courtesy of Wikipedia, so God knows if yes. it's true. It was going to star David Soule and Sam Elliott. Mm. Okay. Which, you know, that's a pretty good pairing, yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> Who was the original director, though? Didn't they throw it at someone like... It was Howard Hawks. Yes. Jesus. Yeah. Man. It was yeah, it was late period Howard Hawks was yeah. attached to do it. But yeah. he was making, what, is it five... What's, like what's Red his, Line 7000. Yeah, Red Line 7000, things like that. Yeah. yeah. So he's kind of in the ballpark. I can't even think of them as contemporaries. Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah. After that, Escape to Which Mountain and Return from Which Mountain... This is where he started to lose me. <laughs> well, say. I've got to say, I really enjoyed Escape from Witch Mountain. I thought it was really fun. I didn't enjoy it, but I liked his work in it. There's still a lot of really interesting stuff. There are some visual effects he does that I was looking at going, what, hang on, how did you do that mm. exactly in 1975? Um, so there's still, like, he's still got a really good storytelling well, Look, we should say this is a very, very strange period for Disney. Uh, it's under the reign of, of a guy I used to see on all the credits, a guy called Ron Miller, who turned out to be Disney's um, son-in-law. That's how he got the gig. And they were making films like The Cat from Outer Space, The Unidentified Flying Oddball, which basically failed to find an audience. And one of the very few successes they had was Escape to Witch Mountain. And for me, the, 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 the highlight of the film is that fantastic set piece, which is once again one of those things, you know, how else did they do that? Which is the, the hat, the coat, and the um, broom attack. Yes. Which is quite incredible, mm. knowing that, there is no, no such CGI. thing as even, you know, a, a laptop computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let alone CGI. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I thought this was really nicely done. and, and, and had All, the all right... that kind of is undone with the flying Winnebago at the end. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, who is the villain in, in this? It's Donald Pleasance and Ray Milland. Yeah, yeah, I thought they were really, really great. Um, like, a lot of fun. Just pitched it at the right kind of... Disney being slightly dark, but yeah. not really. Still on the light side of Disney. The second film, I have to say, does have a telekinetic gold heist, which is a pretty <laughs> yes. amazing... Uh, it has it a, just keeps going. It has, a, it has a heroic rescue by a goat, because the first film had a heroic rescue by a grizzly bear. Yeah. It has a fantastic time-lapse sequence of that crashed van reconstructing itself. Oh, yes. Yeah, which is really, really great. impressive. Yeah. And it's all accompanied by a black exploitation theme, courtesy of Lalo Schifrin, the second yeah. film. It's bizarre. <laughs> And not a bad cast. I mean, the villains are... Who is it? It's Christopher it's Lee and Ben Davis. Davis. Yeah. yeah. You know, no slouches. Clearly taking a paycheck, but... Did you watch Brass Target? Oh, yeah. I did enjoy Brass Target, but I feel like early 70s John Huff would have done more with it. I don't know. Well, see, I, I, love I, I, I really... I love Brass Target because it is so kooky. Yeah. And it is such... I mean, it's a film that basically... It's a World War II conspiracy movie mm. made in 1978 that is very much 10 years past its prime. Yeah. And past its time. Yeah. We, we should explain that it's, it's a crazy film that, that says that General Patton's death by automobile accident was a conspiracy to hide uh, the Third Reich gold theft. Mm, yeah. And it, it does have right, super assassin Max von Sydow now, perfecting a rubber bullet that, yes. that, can, yeah. that can not penetrate the skin but basically look like it's given someone a broken neck. So it's full of great <laughs> ideas. Now, this, I've got to say, this is – I'd never heard of this film. Before this podcast, this was another VHS discovery of mine when I was a kid. Right, Target. yeah, because I, I just thought, how does a film have this cast? And I've never heard of it. Mm. Like you've got 
John well, Cassavetes. It was, it was, we should we should point out. I mean, this isn't a step back for Huff because this is a, a big Huge. budget yeah, MGM MGM film. Yeah, yeah. All shot, you know, on location internationally as well. Yeah, like more than one country. I'm pretty sure. I mean, he turned down the black hole to make this film. Mm. Right. Yeah. Because he was Disney's boy at that time. Yeah. So that's the thing. Well, like, the, cast, the cast is interesting because the cast reads like they've been recruited from late 1960s World War II movies. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and I did, I did notice you've got Topfield Sophia Loren. She was in Operation Crossbow. I don't know if you've ever seen that with George yeah. Papard. You've got Cassavetes and George Kennedy. They're in The Dirty, Dirty Dozen. Dozen. Robert Vaughan was in The Bridge at Remagon, which is a really he's, – he's a great Nazi in that film. <laughs> and Patrick McGowan was in Ice Station Zebra. Oh, right, oh. yeah. Yeah, okay. And McGowan here is totally out of control. This, yeah. this is, it is the nuttiest eccentric performance I've ever seen McGowan given. That's saying a lot. Mm. He tried to master that Bronx accent. Yes. <laughs> and I, I particularly dug uh, Robert Vaughan and Edward Herman's gay relationship. Well, the film yeah, opens that came with out of the film op- well, that doesn't come out of nowhere because the yeah, film yeah, opens know, with it. I mean, yeah, that's what I mean. It opens with it. You're like, <laughs> what the fuck? This is great. Yeah. It's his only Cinemascope film too, which is kind of interesting. Mm. And there are some really good sequences. The opening robbery is really, really well staged. There's a really exciting shootout and chase scene in that church. Yes. You know, I mean, yeah. he's not, some he's not phoning it in. No, that's the thing. Brass Target is by far my favourite of everything else he did after this point. I think the cast are interesting. Like you say, it's got those great set pieces. The story is bizarre. I don't know if it all works at all times, but there's enough oh, no, there's no doubt to make that it, it doesn't, interesting. But... Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it's a lot better than... If it than did, Return you would have heard of it. <laughs> exactly, right? Now, I've got to say, of the two films that came out in 1980 featuring a family moving to a scary remote mansion so the father can work on his art in peace and a creepy kid writing backwards messages on mirrors, this is perhaps not as well known as The Shining. Thank you, thank you. But The Watcher of the Woods... Would. Is still you, you won't even want to know which film I prefer. Uh, no, let me guess. Oh, oh no! <laughs> let me guess. <laughs> no, this is one. I've, this is uh, legendary amongst you know a lot of people of our age. You know, I've got, I've got a friend who still talks about how scary this film. Really? Was a kid. Yeah. yeah. Well, you got to remember, this is a film that was a Disney film. Yes. It was aimed at kids, and it's a supernatural murder mystery from Disney. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of unheard of. But this is, this is the weird time, too. I mean, this is a time when the Disney Corporation couldn't get anyone to see their films. Mm. And they were making kitty fodder, which they figured wasn't working, like we've discussed Candle Shoe and The Cat from Outer Space. They decided to go into much more darker territory, the most successful in terms of just um, craft. I think something we could this way come yeah. to, which I, I really think is a masterpiece. They were making uh, Night Crossing. They... Made the black hole. They made the black cauldron and Tron. And Tron, yeah. Like, yeah. And so Ron Miller, he's he's pitched Watcher in the Woods as this can be Disney's Exorcist. Yes, yeah, that was when development started. That was his quote. Yeah. Huff brought on Brian Clemens, who had worked with him on the they employed him on the Avengers. Brian Clemens had had made the other great seventies Hammer film, which is Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. Mm. Uh, he'd written and directed that. Mm. He wrote a script that was way, way too dark. Disney kept on trying to lighten it, lighten it. Mm. And um, that was only the beginning of the trouble on Watcher in the Woods. Mm. If you're aware of Watcher in the Woods, it was the, the, the big controversy was that the Watcher doesn't actually appear in it. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing it as a kid and, go, and thinking it was pretty spooky, but it had no end. Even then mm. I knew it didn't have an end. And then when you investigate things further, you understand like why. three endings. Yeah. <laughs> None of them were... Have you seen, it? Have you seen like, the endings? No, no, I've just read about them. 
look, I think one of the main problems is the lead actress was a figure skater who got some plaudits for a film she was in called Ice Castles. Then Holly Johnson. Earlier. I just found her completely at sea. I just felt... She has a no, really great no, look, but yeah, she, no has, she has all. no acting chops. Nah. And the fact that she's in 70% of it kind of... Yeah, it doesn't do it a service. And I just felt it, it got more and more kind of tedious as it went on. But I think a lot of those Disney-era films were like that. You know, like Tron and, and, and Black Hole, and they ended up kind of spiralling into tedium. It does. I, I think it does have kind of an atmospheric spooky tone to it. Mm. And and it does have a couple of good sequences. There's a great sequence with the you know, shattered mirrors, and there's a great Hall of Mirrors sequence in it too. Which that, it, that was the one thing that struck me. That scene was pretty good. It has a, a beautiful um, score by Stanley Myers, who, you know, was used to doing things like My Beautiful Lawn Dretton and even did um, Age of Consent a long, long yeah. time ago. Um, the, as we said, the film's biggest mystery is actually off screen. And um, if you are lucky enough to have the Anchor Bay DVD, it does have all three endings mm. on it. And um, it was supposed to build to a climax where the Watcher and its dimension were to be revealed. The original ending involved an outer world, se- an other world sequence, which is even credited on on the film yes. still, even though it doesn't appear in it. <laughs> but the other world sequence wasn't even finished by the time they premiered the film, so it was just cut. And it was another director, wasn't it? No, no, no. So that was cut with just this kind of jump to the credits. Yeah. They pulled it after poor notices, got a new ending filmed by and this was the Harrison Allenshaw, who was um, the visual effects guy, who actually we interviewed for... Um, Electric Boogaloo, I would have loved to have spoken to him about it. Yeah. And they brought in Vincent McVitie, who had been a Disney gun for hire on things like The Million Dollar Duck and Super Dad, <laughs> The Castaway Cowboy. What, he took, what, what titles? He took over direction and it had this new ending that was released and that didn't satisfy anyone either. But it is great seeing the, the Watcher appear. And it's like, a, it's like the alien from Aliens mm-hmm. in a way. And um, the Otherworld sequence is truly terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but all is revealed in the deleted scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Not so much in the movie. <laughs> I got to say, like, there's something in the fact that an actor like John Cassavetes, who is not just a great actor, but a great director in his own right, worked with Huff twice and came back to work with him in Incubus in 1982. And even though 90% of his dialogue in the film is simply the word sperm, I still think <laughs> there's something in that. I, I really liked him give us well, was a fantastic. Really? Movie. Yeah, I really did. <laughs> so much fun. Look, you know, let's moments. let's let's not mince words. It's a, it's a Canadian tax shelter movie. Yeah, sure. it's not correct. But <laughs> I had so much fun with it. And it is, uh, it's particularly nasty too. It's mm. a nasty film about well, basically very... a demon killer who fills his victims with an incredible amount of red semen. Yeah, yeah. hence the. The uh, repeated use of sperm. And, and, uh, you're right, it has got a decent cast. And Cassavetes, what I like about it is that he doesn't seem at all like he's slumming it in. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I've certainly seen him looking like he's slumming it in films. Yeah. But it seems like he's invested in this film for some strange mm. reason. <laughs> and it has got one of the greatest shots I've ever seen in a film. Which one? Which is, um, it's a POV um, from a wheelchair and it ends up and looks under the crack of a door to see the victim lying there. It's a really oh, yeah, yeah. fantastic, beautiful shot that I can't wait to rip off. <laughs> the, yeah, I found, and the ending is kind of nonsense, but... <laughs> no, the ending's great. <laughs> I thought that ending was fantastic. Script-wise, nonsense. Like, it, it was directed well, but yeah. Oh, it's, uh, it's the most unexpected, nasty ending I've seen in a film for a very, very long yeah, time. Yeah, right. 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just, it just didn't... I thought, yeah, really? It just seemed like a kind of a bit of a deus ex machina. But I, I, the way it's directed, I completely agree with you. Like, it's the reveal and the pushing in his eye and the end and all that is really great. But, yeah. So after that, Triumphs of a Man Called Horse in a oh, God. latest in a series of... <laughs> Uh, I've never seen. As soon as I found out that Richard that um, Richard Harris basically dies ten minutes in, it, yeah, I, um, well, I really had no interest in. in yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's dreadful. Great. It's Michael um, Beck playing a Native American for ninety minutes. Then there's another Robert Louis Stevenson in '85, uh, Black Arrow, and then well, that was made for television. Oh, was it Black Arrow? Yeah. Okay. And then there's 1986's Biggles. Well, we should point out that time. scattered throughout this is yep. TV work. Too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. There's Dempsey in Make yep. Peace episodes. There's professional episodes. There's lots of things like that. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, when he gets to, to Biggles' Adventures in Time in 86... This is the only Huff film I ever saw in the cinema. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. So how do you feel about it now? <laughs> I think there's a really good film they're struggling to get out. Yeah. I mean, I think... It all, did get out, all... and it was called Captain America, uh, the first Avenger. It's very similar. <laughs> the traditional Biggles sequences yeah. are really, really good fun. Mm. And from what I understand, that's what the film was supposed to be, like a very much an adventure mm. film in the mould of Rose Lost Ark. But when they were developing the script... Well, you guys know the story. Mm. You know, they saw Back to the Future, back to the and the future that was comes a out. Hit. It's a huge hit, and suddenly the investors want it reworked with a time travel thing. And you know, it's, <laughs> for it, no reason. But having said that, there. I mean, look. I think the scenes with Peter Cushing are really great and really yeah. moving. Yeah. I mean, it's all the old school stuff in it that sort of shows a spark of bringing mm. this film alive. It is. Look, it's yeah. certainly handsomely mounted too. It doesn't look like, you know, they were skimping and saving or anything. Mm. Well, it was yeah. quite heavily promoted at the time, as I mentioned earlier. Like, it, it clearly had some cash behind it, more than probably some of his previous films, actually. Or his later ones. Yes. Uh, or eight, look, 88's American Gothic. Well, this is the beginning of the end for me. Yeah. 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 I actually, look, it, it doesn't start well. It's, it's a crazy hillbilly family meets campers, but I, I do kind of like where it a goes. Lo- a lot of people are big fans of this film. Yeah. I'm kind of not. I've never kind of really... I've never found it... Enjoyable. I've always just found it a little bit. It too, won me over. It's a bit end. too mean spirited for my liking. Sure. Yeah, right. I I thought it did something like I was kind of thinking yeah, is pretty average. And you know, it's fun watching character actors like Michael, Michael J. J. Pollard show up. And... But it, it also it seems to it's the first film that has a distinct lack of style for me. Yeah, right. Uh, but I think it did something really interesting with the final girl thing though. The it's one of the few films I've seen where the final girl goes total native. She becomes one of them. Yeah, yeah, that's what I love about it. And then outdoes them all. And it's like, that's a really interesting spin on the final girl trope. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's what won me over. Yeah, right. The film. It was that, oh, it's actually got something new to do. That It's not just yeah. Texas Chainsaw. Right? That, was, that was the point that, that it began to impress so me. So for me, this, these, this is the, the, the pitfall of being a gun-for-hire director. Yeah. yeah. Where, the, you know, obviously you're at the mercy of shonky producers and very bad scripts. Mm. And for me, that's kind of what happens to, to Huff here. Yeah. Um, the Howling Four, the, the original, original Nightmare. nightmare. <laughs> I didn't get to this one. It's not good. It, it is. It is awful beyond belief. I mean, it, it is hard. It is so amateurish. It's hard to believe oh. that it's the same guy who made all the films we've been and talking I about. Yeah. Harder to watch than the Barbara Cartland adaptations he did. <laughs> a Hazard of Hearts in '87, <laughs> The Lady and the Highwayman in '89, A Ghost in Monte Carlo in 1990, and no, no, Hearts in I wouldn't be chuckling it. at all because they are beautifully made, high budget television dramas. Sure. 
And and if you had the opportunity to work with the casts that are it's in those films, cast. why would you say no? Oh no, he, I'm not. I'm not poo-pooing those at all. Like aside from um, Lady and the Highwayman, which is Hugh Grant. terrible. Hugh Grant, it's terrible. And I think the only one of all of these films that has been released on DVD in Australia, right? <laughs> the worst. Through, the I, I have the copy. It's through Payless Entertainment. <laughs> but, um, but it's interesting because this this is him reteaming with Albert Fennell, the, the Avengers producer, yeah. the producer of Legend okay. of Hell House. Laurie Johnson, the composer of the Avengers, comes on board as a co-producer. They re-kick Gainsborough films up, mm. and they make these Barbara Cartland adaptions, and they manage to recruit Diana Rigg, Edward Fox, Christopher Plummer, Stuart Granger, Oliver Reed, Claire Bloom, Michael York, John Jesus. Mills, Robert Morley, Sarah Miles, Geraldine Chaplin, Gareth Hunt and Joanna Lumley from The New Avengers, yep. Lewis Collins and Gordon Jackson from The Professionals, as well as newcomers, just these people who'd never been yep. in anything before, yeah, yeah. like Helena Bonham Carter yep. and um, Emma Sams and mm. Hugh Grant. It's the Barbara Cartland television version of The Love Boat. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and the Hell on the Bottom Carter one isn't, isn't bad. And like I said, I found them more enjoyable than The Howling Fall. They, they have, they have mm-hmm. higher IMDb ratings than any of these other films too. Wow. Right. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, so obviously the people they were made for love them. Now, 98 Something to Believe In has only been released on VHS, I d- and I only found that out when it was too late to order it from eBay. Yeah. So that's nowhere to be found. It's not on DVD. It's not on streaming it's yeah it's a, it's a Lou look I've never seen it but I understand it's a, it's a Lou grade production and it's all about the, the casinos in Monte Carlo and it has cameos from people like Roddy McDowell and um, Robert Wagner and Jill St. John and people like it's that Roddy, but then his last film to date it was 2002 oh, so yeah. I don't know if he's going to ever make another but uh, 2002's Bad Karma it's hard to watch this film and think this is the guy who gave us Hell House. This is the guy who gave us Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. These, the you know, these beautiful or adrenalised or these, you know, this exquisite craft. It's like it feels like a first-time filmmaker. Like, and I know money and time. It just doesn't feel like an excuse. Like some scenes are so poorly lit. It's just like you're just in a regular room and one person's... Like, well, there was a story of like so the, the producer said, oh, we need to have boobs in the film and just got somebody else to direct a scene you know, with, yeah, with right. a topless woman just to put in the film for the investors. You know, it sounds like he didn't have a lot of control over this one. Two minutes in, you're just like, this is well, like it's, bad it's TV. Well, it's Fear meets From Hell, yeah. starring yeah. Patsy Kensett. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and it's a lot less interesting than that. Well, sounds. actually, starring Patsy Kensett's lips. Yeah. yeah. Because they literally steal the film, because mm. you cannot take your eyes off them. Patsy Kensett in full makeup, despite being chained to a bed Well, 24/7. I also love the fact that she's playing this woman who's been in a mental institute because she thinks she's a reincarnation of Jack the Ripper's girlfriend. But yet, when she needs to, she can basically drive a ferry um, <laughs> cruise ship with absolutely no problems at all. Yeah. Uh, it's also yeah. it's shot in Galway, doubling as a Californian island as well. <laughs> Look, this this is streaks ahead, though. I mean, I, I just watched Howling Four, which oh wow, so you mm. prefer this to Howling oh, Four? Oh yeah, Howling Four. God, that's all post sunk as well because it was shot in South Africa, so no one's everyone's speaking with South African accents. Yeah. Everything's been dubbed in it. The first werewolf doesn't appear until sixty-five minutes in, <laughs> and the transformation doesn't appear until eighty-five minutes in. So you're in a lot of trouble with Howling. And the film's like ninety minutes, ninety-four yeah. minutes or something. <laughs> so, do you know if uh, he just couldn't get any more films made or he made the conscious decision to retire? I just think you're at that age where the people running Hollywood don't know who you are anymore. Mm. They, they have no sense of film history. Uh, you know, they're not going to go and track down a film called The Legend of Hell House or have any idea what Crazy Mary Dirty Larry is. Mm. You get superseded. Mm. I think he's just had his 73rd birthday too. I think it's this week. Well, he, he produced his son's film. Um, mm. Paul is his son, uh, thing called the human race i'm not sure if you've seen the human race 
I mean, you're right. This is not a t the type of filmmaker we usually talk about on the show. So, but there are lots of people, as I say, you know, check out the go on IMDb and look at Richard Fleischer's work. Look at John Gilliman. John Gilliman's another English director who made so many great films, um, and people just don't know these guys. Even yeah, John Badham's work, as you mentioned earlier, yeah, someone that's a bit missed. But yeah, I think definitely check out his '70s stuff because I think there's a lot of gold in there. Yeah, John John Huff's '70s gear is really really solid. Absolutely. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you so much. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Yeah, but you said he was putting a load in some pinhead's dryer last night.